when my, fam my extended family get together, we like to play parlor games. So on New Year's Day, for example, there's about a dozen of us playing this game where one person is sent out of the room and the rest make up a rule for how they're going to answer every question. And when they've decided what that rule is, then they get the person back in and you start asking questions like, what's your favorite color? Or what did you have for breakfast or anything else? Well, almost everybody in the family had had a go and done pretty well. And then it came to my turn. Now I was a little bit reluctant, but I was desperate to try and spot the pattern, maybe in their mannerisms or, or the words they used, but I just couldn't work it out. Was it that their legs were always crossed? Was there some small gesture that I had to spot? Was there something in the spelling of the words they were saying? Well, it went on and on. And they were trying to make it as obvious as possible because they wanted me to get it, which made it all the more embarrassing when I couldn't. Well, in the end, I sat down. I quit, I, I'd had enough, um, oh, politely, but uh, I gave up. Uh, thankfully, they did explain uh, what the rule was. It was simply that the first word of the answer they gave, uh, the first letter of that word was the same as the first letter of that person's first name. You wouldn't have thought that was particularly difficult. My problem was I got stuck on the word cheese said by someone whose name begins with a letter H, but apparently they said, hmm, cheese, and I just didn't spot that, didn't count it. Anyway, you might ask, what's that story got to do with the passage that we're looking at today, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 to 16? Well, I suggest perhaps it touches on some of the same themes, that is hidden truth, pride and revelation. Let me read the passage to you. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments, 
For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, uh, give me the words and give us the ears that your truth may be revealed, that we may know you better and become more like you and help others to do the same. Amen. I'm going to break this passage down into two sections. The first section is the wisdom of God, looking at verses 6 to 9, and then verses 10 to 16 are all about the Spirit of God, the wisdom of God and the Spirit of God. So, the wisdom of God, looking at verse 6. I mean, firstly, we note that Paul changes from using I to talking about we, and he does that throughout this passage, by which he means we the believers. We, the church, him and them as Christians in Corinth. Also in verse 6, he refers to the mature. Again, I think he's referring to all believers. He's not suggesting that the Corinthians have reached perfection, but that each and every one of them have received everything they need to grow in God. There's no second class Christian that gets to miss out. And then the language he's using here, like wisdom and mature and mystery in these opening verses, is linked to the Greek culture in which the church there were submerged. With their fascination with secret knowledge that perhaps only a few clever people could penetrate and endeavour to explain to the the plebs around, meaning the the lower castes and classes in quite a subhuman type way. Now, Paul is contrasting the world's wisdom, which he refers to as the wisdom of this age in verse 6, with God's wisdom in verse 7, or the message of wisdom in verse 6. And and that is another way of talking about the gospel or the cross of Jesus Christ. And what Paul's explaining is, see, the world's wisdom is temporary, but God's wisdom is permanent. The world's wisdom changes over time and eventually fades away to nothing, as he points out in verse 6. I mean, just for example, the Greeks thought they'd reached the pinnacle of civilization. The Roman Empire lasted a thousand years, yet worldly wisdom moved on, changed, left it behind, moved on to other values. Similarly, our generation uh, often criticises the the values, the practices of our grandparents' generation. Well, inevitably, so it will be that our grandchildren will one day, no doubt, regard our values as backward and even offensive. But in contrast, the crucifixion, the resurrection, this wisdom of God, the cross of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, this was God's wisdom that had been planned in eternity past. Or as Paul puts it here, was destined before time began. It's never changed. But what has changed over time is mankind's awareness of God's wisdom, their understanding of his plan for saving the world, his plan for salvation. There was a time when the wisdom of God was hidden from view. Now, God left a trail, lots of clues throughout throughout biblical history, uh, 
In fact, even right at the beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God prophesied that a human descendant would ultimately crush the head of the snake. In other words, destroy the devil. Despite first getting a snake bite. In other words, being mortally wounded. See, God's plan had always been, as he stated back then, to uh, snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. Yet even with that and all the subsequent clues and hints throughout the Bible, nobody anticipated the cross. Even when Jesus was being crucified, Pontius Pilate, King Herod, the high priests and all their advisors at the time, they completely misunderstood what was going on. These are the rulers of this age that Paul referred to in verse 8. And he said, look, if they'd worked it out at the time, then they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, it is the human rulers, I think, that Paul's got in mind here, but neither did the demons nor the devil himself understand this plan. They thought that the cross had killed Jesus and his claim over the human race. I think Satan was as surprised by Easter Day as anyone else. You might know the story of the lion, the witch and the wardrobe, C.S. Lewis's fictional story that allegorises the cross. Well, one of my favourite parts is when Susan and Lucy turn away from Aslan the lion who's lying dead on the stone table. Then suddenly they hear a loud crack and they turn back. They see the table split, they see the table empty and then they see Aslan looking stronger and bigger and more golden than before. And they run to him, they ask, what does this mean? And he replies, it means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery, was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. You know, the wisdom of God, the eternally planned, unchanging wisdom of God is now revealed in Jesus Christ. And the second theme is the Spirit of God. Let's now look at verse 10 to 16. Paul now focuses on the role of the Holy Spirit in all of this. Now, when we think Holy Spirit, we might immediately think of the supernatural spiritual gifts of the Spirit. And we looked at those uh, just a few months ago based on chapters 12 and 14 of this very letter. But the Holy Spirit has another primary role in the life of a believer. Let's look at verse 10. It describes the Holy Spirit here as the revealer of these things. These things being God's wisdom, the good news of Jesus Christ, his crucifixion and his resurrection. And the Holy Spirit's main role 
is to reveal Jesus, this message to people, and he loves to do that. Paul goes on to explain that the Holy Spirit is only able to do this because he is God. The ability to search all things, even the deep things of God, as he explains in the second half of verse 10, is a claim that the Holy Spirit is all-knowing. He doesn't have to go and hunt for it. He knows everything. He's omniscient, an attribute that only applies to God. And in verse 11, Paul's giving a human illustration of this dynamic. Just as no one really knows what you're thinking, and that we can hazard a guess, we can observe your behaviour, we can ask you some probing questions, we don't really know exactly and everything that's going on between your two ears. And in my case, it's probably not much anyway. Only God's Spirit, in a similar way, really knows what God is thinking and what he's been thinking all along. So Paul, having laid now this foundation of who the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does, then goes on to explain what this means in the life of every Christian, both in Corinth then and all the believers around the world ever since. And it's in verse 12. And for me, verse 12 is the standout verse of this passage, uh, at least for today. It says this, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. In other words, I think, Paul's saying that those who are in Christ have already received two amazing gifts from God. Firstly, the full benefits of the cross. This is freely given to anyone and everyone by God's grace who repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus. But we've also received the Holy Spirit, given right from the outset to enable us to understand all of these things, all of the first thing, the benefits of the cross and to live in the good of them. When you were a kid, did you ever get a Christmas present that you couldn't fully play with on Christmas Day because it said on the pack, uh, no batteries included and there were no shops open either. Well, God's not like that. With his gift, the batteries are included. We have the power pack as part of the package. And he goes on to uh, explain just how dependent we are on the Holy Spirit. Now, just our own salvation story is completely dependent on God. God the Father for choosing and calling us before the dawn of time. It's completely dependent on God the Son for paying our sin penalty, for overcoming death for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. Well, in a similar way, our salvation is completely dependent on God the Spirit for convicting us of sin, imparting faith to believe and making us spiritually reborn. Every step of our salvation journey is entirely dependent on God's work, including the work of the Holy Spirit and nothing of our work. Therefore, Paul concludes, no one can boast. 
And he concludes really in this section that there are only two types of people in this world. There are those with the spirit, he talks about in verse 15, or spiritual people, we might also call them Christians or saints. Now, these are those who have the Holy Spirit living in them. And therefore, Paul concludes, they're able to understand God's wisdom, the mind of Christ, as he puts it at the end of verse 16. And then there are others who are without the Spirit in verse 14. If you like unspiritual people, we might call them non-Christians or sinners, a probably better biblical term, because they don't have God's Spirit in them. Therefore, by definition, they're unable to understand God's wisdom, which Paul emphasises here with a quote from Isaiah 40. Therefore, they're going to regard the gospel of Jesus Christ as foolish. To end then, I'm just going to draw out three points of application from these things. Firstly, around the theme of pride. We've seen over previous weeks that pride is the root issue that Paul is trying to address at the start of this letter. Yes, he goes on to confront all of their presenting issues like disunity and immorality and idolatry and selfishness, and we'll get on to those, but he's discerned that pride is the underlying issue, causing the other symptoms, if you like. Now, it's good for us when we note things to, to confess and to repent of our sin. Uh, not because our eternal security is at stake, but for our relational connection with God. But there's also much to be gained in those moments by asking God, the Holy Spirit, the why question. Why did I show favouritism? Why did I dominate the meeting? Why am I trying to defend myself? Why have I returned to this vice? And the why question for the Corinthians revealed their problem with pride. And Paul addresses their pride by reminding them as he's done again here in this passage, that the gospel is the great leveller. See, Christians have no cause for boasting because, as we've said again, our, our salvation is all dependent on God, including the Spirit of God. So there's no basis for us within the church to feel either superior to others or inferior to others. Now, the challenge for pride is that it can be very subtle in our lives. I found the following list, and I'll put it on the screen here, really helpful to prayerfully consider with the help of the Holy Spirit every now and then. It kind of breaks down pride into attitudes that are sometimes going on in the recesses of our hearts and minds. Just to read a few out, for example, being more concerned about controlling others than in developing self-control. Being too busy doing important and selfish things rather than seeking and doing God's will. Having a tendency to think I've got no needs or finding it hard to admit when I am wrong. Perhaps you want to return to this list later and do that very thing with the Holy Spirit's help. Secondly, in mission. For anyone to respond to the gospel with faith, they are going to need the Holy Spirit to do two miracles. Firstly, to anoint the speaker's words. And secondly, to anoint the hearer's ears so that they can understand. Therefore, 
This is releasing. Whether you're a Christian for five minutes or five decades, the Holy Spirit is able to use you to point or lead someone to Jesus Christ. Because it doesn't depend on the depth of your knowledge of the Bible or your ability to learn a script. Uh, back in the 90s, um, our church got to know a South Korean Christian who'd uh, come to the UK as a missionary. He was known as Paul Song. Uh, but at the time, he said he only knew two English words, hallelujah and amen. And he told us this story, once he uh, knew a few more uh, words in English, about how he used to ask the Holy Spirit to lead him to people he could witness to. And on one occasion, with only a big beaming smile and these two English words and the Holy Spirit's help, he recounts how a man broke down in tears, repented of his sin, and gave his life to Jesus right there and then. I don't know how Paul Song knew this had happened. Perhaps they just ended up, uh, both of them saying amen and hallelujah, together with tears running down their cheeks. Let's trust that the Holy Spirit will give us, whoever we are, however long we've been a believer, however much of the Bible we've read, the words to say in the moment. He's promised to do that for us. Let's learn in those moments to respond to the Holy Spirit's prompts. Not just what we've learned and our patter, uh, whether it be a, a short testimony, a specific truth, a word of knowledge, or even a question that the Holy Spirit would have us ask. And thirdly, Bible reading. Every believer has everything they need to grow in God. They're not dependent on anything other than the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. There's no barrier, there's no glass ceiling, there's no second level, any hidden mystery that you need to get in on before you can grow in Christ. You need yourself, the Bible and the Holy Spirit and you need to get together and spend some time with one another. Yes, of course, books and commentaries and podcasts and of course, groups of, dis of, of Christians getting together to discuss. These are all valuable but you can feed yourself with the help of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Find a time and a place that's quiet. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal truth to you. Uh, read just a short passage, a few verses, and ask, Holy Spirit, uh, help me. What does this tell me about you? What does this tell me about me? What does this tell me about your people and the mission we're on. How does this help me relate to you and to others? What do you want me, Holy Spirit, to do as a result of this? Well, hallelujah and amen. Uh, both are now revealed and available for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. The wisdom of God and the Spirit of God.